This podcast, as always, is brought to you by Vent, a place where everyone, but especially men and boys, can open up about their mental health issues, break down stigmas, and start conversations. I am your host, Freddie Cocker. Each pod, I check in with a very special guest. We have Anatta and chat about all things mental health, as well as anything and everything else they are passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health, we discuss it. Sex is a topic Brits feel pretty uncomfortable talking about most of the time. However, thanks to shows like Sex Education and people's attitudes generally getting a bit looser in 2021, we've made some real strides. When it comes to pornography and its impact on society's collective mental health, the conversation is awash with opposing discourses, sometimes misinformation and oftentimes toxicity. The battle lines are drawn between sex-positive people who have and promote an open, tolerant or progressive attitude towards sex and sexuality, according to them, and then sex-negative people who believe that the effects of pornography on society have been corruptive, harmful and dangerous. They may argue that the porn industry is exploitative of women or allows them to be abused, and they might also argue that it distorts young boys' behaviour towards women and their expectations of sex. This battle normally happens within feminism, so for example sex positive and sex negative feminists tend to be duking it out online and in social commentary circles. My special guest for this episode is a man who has written a book on the porn industry and argues that censorship of porn is widespread and is having a negative impact on society. His name is Jerry Barnett. Jerry has held many careers throughout his life and also happened to be a software developer at the time of the internet being created. In this episode, we discuss the historical context of censorship laws around porn in the UK, whether pornography really does lead to increased rates of sexual violence towards women, the erasure of female directors in the adult film industry, and why people try and pretend they don't exist. We also discuss Jerry's experience of becoming a fatherhood twice, once when he was very young and again as an older man, and what it's taught him about himself and life. We also discuss a serious physical assault Jerry experienced where he could have been killed, the short-term PTSD he experienced from it, and how he overcame it to live life again to the fullest. So this is how my conversation with Jerry Barnett went. Jerry Barnett, welcome to the Just Checking Pod. Having read your book, Porn Panic, I'm very excited to have this conversation with you. How are you, mate? How are you getting on? I'm good, thanks. Yeah, I've been slightly frazzled. I've been dealing with children this morning. My wife decided to go away this weekend, which suddenly makes it harder to schedule everything. But yeah, I'm good. I should also say from the mental health aspect, I'm also a bit of an SAD sufferer. So this is just about my worst time of year. But yeah, I'm, I'm doing okay. I apologise for the time, but hopefully this can be a nice pod for you to do. And it's something that I've wanted to cover on the pod for a long time. So thank you for doing this, Jerry. Without further ado, I know you're on a, a time restriction. Shall we just start the show? Let's start the pod by talking about your book, Porn Panic. So set the scene for me first, mate. Why did you want to write it? And given the taboos and myths it attempts to break down, did you feel any trepidation before writing it as well? What got me interested in the subject long before that was I was running a tech company, an online tech company, and some of my customers were in the porn industry. And after the crash of 2000-ish, so going back a while, most of our customers vanished except for the porn customers because they were the only ones actually making profit and not relying on handouts from venture capitalists. So I'd been around that industry for a long time and actually, and and it came to dominate my business for a while after that. 
So, yeah, I mean, in terms of trepidation, you can be tainted by being around that industry. And, it, you know, it's something that people simultaneously find fascinating and love to be shocked about. And there are all sorts of taboos and, and so on. So to an extent, you become tainted by being involved with something like that. But fast forwarding to, to why I wrote the book, I, I eventually that business closed down about 2012. And my partner was pregnant with my first child now, who's almost nine. And I'd been involved in increasing numbers of clashes with the authorities. So I'd kind of gone into this business with a kind of naive view that if, if I'm, you know, there were dodgy people in the industry, not necessarily evil kidnappers and the kind of thing people like to imagine, but there were certainly people staying very close to the edge of what was legal and what was illegal. Certainly people running their businesses through offshore accounts, so they weren't paying tax. It was that kind of industry. And I decided that if I'm squeaky clean, paying tax, stick to all the, the laws, and also get to know the regulators and the government regulators personally, go and introduce myself and, and work with them, that somehow that would be beneficial. And actually what I discovered, I discovered why everyone works through overseas companies and offshore accounts and things, is that the British regulators aren't tolerant and, at all and, and didn't want to make the industry cleaner and better, that actually there was a deep hostility and there were people within the state and within, within the regulators that saw regulation as an opportunity to simply drive the porn industry out of the UK. So I found myself clashing with them, in the end kind of gave up, closed the business down, the business wasn't going brilliantly by then anyway, it was a good opportunity to, to kind of move on. But I had my eyes open to the politics of free speech and censorship and the way the state operates when it's trying to censor the internet and in particular the kind of particularly British state hostility towards sexual content and any kind of open open sexuality. And so yeah, I, I decided to to write my book at that point. And and the book was it began looking specifically at the censorship of of sex and sexual material and the state hostility to that. But I also began to run across these kind of cultural trends and political trends and finding out that there was this deep rising conservatism happening around them, this kind of very deep hostility to not just the porn, but to free speech and to free expression across the board. And so I started, I, I used to do, I got involved in university debates, I'd debate with radical feminists and find this kind of extreme ultra-conservatism that was rising on the political left that I'd kind of previously really been unaware of. I've always been on the left politically. And that began to concern me, if anything, more than the state and the rising state authoritarianism, because I began to fear these cultural trends a lot more, because to an extent, in a democratic system, you can oppose what the state is doing, you can lobby against it, you can protest. But when you have the rise of these kind of very intolerant mobs, which we were starting to see 10 years ago with social media and the beginnings of what we now call cancel culture, and this kind of massive amounts of what can only be called bullying, really, people like stamping out anything that they disagreed with, that came to interest me as much as the threat of state censorship. And so porn panic 
really looks at, at this issue. It starts off by looking at the radical feminists and their rise, where radical feminism came from and how it's actually quite a right-wing movement that kind of embedded in, in the political left is quite a strange beast. And as I wrote and documented the rise of that feminist movement, I started suddenly, at the same time, everything was exploding in terms of what we call the regressive left or the woke or the or cancel culture and so on. So the book really looks at intolerance and censorship at the street level. In the book, you argue that pornography is not sexual violence, Jerry, and that porn has existed from the times of cavemen for 40,000 years in some way, shape or form. Playing devil's advocate here, sex negative feminists would say, hang on, you know, there's porn categories like rape fantasy, which are violent or they would say are violent, abusive or dangerous. What would you say to those people? People who want to ban porn tend to obviously attack the fringes, the worst stuff that's out there or, or in quotes, the worst. So there's a load of stuff that's perfectly, I would say it's perfectly legitimate, but BDSM and the rough sex category, which is mostly what they tend to attack. Now, first of all, it's, they only attack that because that's the stuff that looks worse. So that, that those are the examples they pick out to kind of then use against all pornography. Right. So first of all, I wouldn't particularly trust that argument because once they ban one thing, they move on to the next thing. The slippery know, slope but, argument, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, and they, they're very good at creating a slippery slope. <laughs> But there were moral panics over, quotes, rape porn and, and things like that. But actually, mostly, you know, what they're talking about is acted, simulated fantasy. And no, I don't have any problem with that kind of fantasy. And what's interesting is that even though it's feminists using this stuff to suggest that porn is harmful to women, then actually, if you look at female and male porn tastes, if you look at what people look at, Women actually have much darker tastes in pornography than men. Women can fantasize a lot more deeply and men are, are more visual in their tastes. So so actually when you do look at the fringes and, and rape fantasy and that kind of thing, a lot of this stuff was being watched by women more than by men. And, and actually it's interesting that, that women do have these fantasies often more than men do. You know, that throws all sorts of contradictions open. <laughs> I mean, you know, one of the things that you discover when you track the feminist movement is the feminist movement claims to speak for women but of course as in with any strand of identity politics that's kind of a false claim you know nobody speaks for women because women are such a broad and diverse group of people just like Very, nobody speaks for all men and stuff like that yeah all men or yeah. all or all black people or yeah. whatever you know it's the core problem with identity politics everywhere but yeah so so they tend to use the kind of rough stuff or whatever as the, the proxy to attack porn when i in the book is to say okay i mean let's get past the philosophical arguments about what this might do to people and actually look at science and what the actual effects have been and and in the book as the anti-porn people point out regularly we've been swamped with porn over the past 30 40 years you know we had the rise of vhs and then dvd and then streaming and if porn was as bad as they say there would be detectable effects from it. I mean, they're claiming that, that it's incredibly harmful and they're claiming that we've been saturated with it. So there must be some effect. I'm from a scientific education, maths education. And the obvious question is, okay, let's go and find the evidence to support this. And when you talk to them, you realize they don't have any. And so, you know, I went to look at the evidence myself. And what's been very interesting is that there's very strong evidence that as porn becomes more freely available in a society, then sexual violence falls and falls quite significantly. Wow. And that's what really interested me. I mean, I I wasn't an advocate for porn 
as being a good thing. I was just kind of skeptical that it was a bad thing. But the more you examine the issue, the more you realize that actually, at least at the macro level, porn seems to be good for society. I dedicated a chapter of Porn Panic to discussing the evidence about yeah. that. You give a really detailed overview of censorship history in this country. So you talk a lot about the Obscene Publications Act. You talk a lot about the Home Office establishing the Committee on Obscenity and Film Censorship in the 1970s. Obviously, the older listeners will remember the work of Mary Whitehouse, which you talk about in quite a lot of detail as well. The Video Recordings Act of 1984. (laughs) One thing I do want to focus on before we move on is that you write that the BBFC frowned upon many things important, including female ejaculation being shown. Given what we've talked about from the Radfem perspective, isn't that not a sexist policy in not wanting female sexual expression to be shown on screen? I mean, it, it could be, you know, sex positive feminists claim that it's sexist to ban it and radical feminists don't care because they want it banned anyway. I think the reality is kind of a bit of neither, really. I mean, it, the BBFC got the power to censor videos in 1984 appropriately in the Video Recordings Act. And they actually became a very powerful body of state censorship at that point, because nobody, after 1984, nobody was allowed to publish a video or DVD in the UK unless the BBFC had already approved it. It was a very draconian system. And so the BBFC then had to decide what their attitude to porn was, and they just basically started making up the rules. So, you know, literally just based on British kind of moral judgment. So their first ruling on porn was that all porn is is illegal and it's all banned. And that didn't actually change till 2000, by which point the internet was there and it was stupid. You know, people could access porn anyway. And at that point, someone challenged them in court and they lost, so they had to allow porn. So porn's only been legal in the UK for 20 odd years. So then they made up a new set of rules. They moved the boundaries back a bit, but they still had a bewildering list of rules that they just seemed to have plucked out of thin air. One of those rules relates to urination during sex, uh, water sports, which they deemed was obscene. And the only reason female ejaculation was banned was because when they're censoring a video, they can't tell if it's actual female ejaculation or if it's simulated using urination. So basically, they just banned female ejaculation as a subcategory of urination. And they banned loads of other things, and, and they created lots of insane rules that porn producers 20 years ago had to to learn and adhere to none of which were based on harm or almost none of which were based on actual harm they were based on moral judgments really you talk a lot in the book about how sex negative feminists paint the porn industry as one rife with sexual exploitation and abuse of women now as someone who's (laughs) been involved in this world for quite a few years what's the truth what's the reality is all porn abusive for women I started to get involved. Originally, I was just building sites for customers, but as I realized that we were actually involved in the industry, then that my business was involved in the industry, I set out to find out more. And this was getting on for 20 years ago. I just set out to meet everyone who was involved in any way in the industry. And in the UK, that wasn't especially hard. It was a really small little industry. And I set up what at the time was called a, a zine or an e-zine, which would now be called a blog or something, and started interviewing British porn stars, which nobody had done before. It was kind of a very underground thing and, and no one took it seriously. I wanted to understand why they did this and what their experience was. And so I talked to loads of people. I met, I made loads of friends in the industry and 
the answer was mostly, I mean, they did it either because it was fun, they liked the lifestyle, or it was well paid or some combination of those things. You couldn't find, you know, the exploitation that the radical feminists were reporting everywhere. And they were, you know, they come out with all sorts of anecdotes that you can't check because they're always anonymous anecdotes. They talk about people being raped on set and this kind of thing. So I just asked producers and models and performers, and I just couldn't find this world that the radical feminists were talking about. But I mean, it eventually it occurred to me that it wasn't actually up to me to prove their point, that if you're making a claim, then it, you're the one supposed to be proving it. So I eventually wrote to the head of Object, which was a, or still is a radical feminist group and, and probably the most active anti-porn group in the UK. I found out she lived in the same part of London as me. And I said, every time I meet you in university debates, you keep talking about these women you've met who have been scarred and who are in hiding and blah, blah, blah. How about you and me both go to the local police station with the list of these things and let's report them and I will help you track down the perpetrators because I, I know anyone who's anyone in this industry. And of course she didn't reply. And you know, so these claims are nonsense. And, and one thing that really kind of freaked me out a bit about dealing with radical feminists over time is that they're a really, really irrational bunch of people. I mean, collectively, it, it's a really weird and irrational movement. And it's hatred of sex comes from a really deep psychological place. And the kind of people that become radical feminists are a particular type of people. But it's really easy to beat these people in debate when you're talking to them. But there is no rationality there. They exist by making these claims that nobody can ever falsify because they're made up, basically. And that's one of the things that drove me to write the book. This isn't just a bunch of cranks. This is a, a long-standing part section of the American, of the Western left, the American and British left, which is quite odd and quite scary in, in the way they, in the way they operate. It's worth adding some, you know, anecdotes. When I spoke to models about their experiences and who'd harassed them and so on, there were people being harassed by radical feminists. So the radical feminists were simultaneously claiming they wanted to rescue women and then harassing them and threatening them. And I realized this was quite a dark movement and, and quite a strange bunch of people. And I had one friend, for example, who was a stripper and used to do private stag parties, who got a, a phone call on her way to a party saying, we know where you're going. You're going to this party. We know your address. We know your family's address. And unless you turn around and go home now, you're in trouble. And so she, she was actually getting very scary threats of violence from radical feminists, essentially. And that's what Jesus. really made me realize that there was, this wasn't a women's rights movement. Women's rights is a very good cover for achieving whatever else your goals might be. I extend that a lot to, to a lot of the identity politics stuff. If you have the moral high ground, you can kind of justify some pretty horrible behaviors. One myth I also wanted to break down, which you talk a lot about, is that most people on the outside world, Jerry, would imagine that all porn directors maybe have a, are a stereotypical image of a testosterone-fueled man, but they're actually female directors and lots of women behind the camera too. Why has that erasure happened? And is that sexist as well, in some way? Mm, um, there definitely was an erasure. I, I think people are, are more aware of that now. I think, yeah, it's because the anti-porn campaigners they want to create a vision of something scary going on. So they talk about trafficking a lot. And because they're on the left, they'll also talk about capitalism. So they'll say this capitalistic patriarchal industry is exploiting and abusing women. That's the basis of, of their claims. So 
to an extent, they're raised female porn makers. They also raised gay porn because you can't go around talking about how porn is exploitive of, of women. And then it's kind of awkward that actually a lot of porn consumed is gay, you know, gay male porn. So yeah, there's been a deliberate erasure of female directors and there have been female directors around as long as I've known the industry, so 20 plus years. And that's only increased. A lot of performers, a lot of women start as performers and then become directors. It's quite an easy step from, you know, in front or behind the camera. Or in the case of gonzo porn, which is kind of handheld cameras and stuff, you can do both at the same time. And yeah, there was a, a feminist porn conference found that began in Toronto 10 or 15 years ago. I'm not sure if it's still going to showcase the work of female porn directors and so on. You know, sex is the biggest industry in the world, probably, yeah. you know, co collectively, and it's dominated by women. Most of the money earned in the sex industry is earned by women. And that's something that's, that's a basic fact of mankind, which is also really inconvenient to radical feminists who want to present sex as something that is only done by men to women and against women's will. You spoke earlier about women's use of porn and you said in a Marie Claire study it found in 2015 over 40% of the women, mostly under 34, watched porn at least once a week. A, did that shock you? And B, what do you think that says about porn's impact on our mental health given what we've discussed so far? It didn't shock me. I mean, by then I, I kind of was aware <laughs> that women were watching porn. When porn was bought, before free porn came along, so you, again, you had to go back about 15 years, when people paid for porn online rather than just streamed it for free. The consumers were mostly male. So men find porn more valuable than women. When you have to pay for it, a lot of women wouldn't bother or their boyfriend would pay and they'd watch it with their boyfriend or whatever. The top ones as well, like me. <laughs> <laughs> That's right, yeah. I mean, it's hard to imagine paying for porn these days. But as porn became free, then the number of female viewers rocketed because it turned out women were interested. They ju were just less interested than men and they and you know in general they need it less than men you know but on the other hand women consume vast amounts of erotic literature which men don't do 50 shades of gray being a famous example the most famous example yeah. but actually i mean it gets a lot darker than 50 shades and again yeah, if, you at, I bet. <laughs> if you look at what women read again it's it's off the scale weird because women are much more into fantasy than men oh, they tend to okay. fantasize about weirder stuff and amazon one day this is a decade or so ago, they banned a load of erotic literature. They literally pulled down like a million self-published erotic titles. They were mostly read by women. And, you know, the themes of this stuff is kind of alien abduction, kidnap, torture. You know, and it, it's, it's very dark. And as I say, women tend to have darker fantasies than men. And, and this became clear. But yeah, so women do watch lots of porn. The other thing that happened was when you actually look at what men and women consume, men actually are more boring than women. So again, the stuff that the radical feminists are pointing at, which was gangbangs and BDSM, tended to be watched more by women than men. And men are often quite happy watching lesbian scenes or threesomes and, you know, stuff that's, that's kind of more tame in comparison. The most important part of the book for me, Jerry, is the evidence you give that dispels the link between pornography and rape or sexual violence. Now, there's a few studies that you cite, which I'm going to talk about here. One is an 2011 Ofcom official report on porn for the UK government. And in it, they state, quote, there seems to be no relationship between the availability of pornography and an increase in sex crimes in other European countries, end quote. They go on to say, quote, 
Research with adults indicates no relationship between the commission of sex crimes and use of pornography at an early stage, end quote. You also quote several studies by researchers Antti Diamato and Bell Kaczynski on rape rates in Denmark, Germany and the US. You argue through their work that the more porn there is, the less rape there is. And you also cite the former Czechoslovakia and its move to liberalise pornography laws. One of the effects of that revolution was that child sex abuse plummeted by almost half, recovered to its original level, and there's been a gradual long-term decline ever since. So why did all of that happen? And why is that such a taboo thing to say? Hmm. I think, I mean, the reason it all happens is kind of incredibly obvious. And the fact that it's incredibly obvious and we're not supposed to point it out is the weird thing. So it's kind of obvious, I think, at least to men. Men masturbate and become less horny. That doesn't even need discussion. We know that. So the idea that encouraging masturbation and providing tools for masturbation and providing material to make masturbation more satisfying would make people less horny and less likely to go out and seek sex, whether it's consensual sex or non-consensual. You know, in general, you would expect that porn use would lead to more masturbation and would result in people having lower interest in sex, at least aggregate. And that's actually what appears to happen. That shouldn't surprise anyone, but it does because they've been so filled with stories about objectification and porn addiction and porn rewiring your brain and and things like that. The obvious doesn't even dawn on people. So yeah, I mean, the, the explanation appears to be that simple. And the evidence, which I, as you say, I covered in my book, is immense. It's not just studies, it's entire societies as the internet turns up, you know, the changes in social behaviors as, as the internet appears. And one of those studies found that the highest rates of sexual violence are not that surprisingly in the, in the 15 to 19 year old age group. And the, the highest falls in sexual violence came when teenagers had access to free porn, to pornography online for the first time. It was much harder for teenagers to go out and buy a VHS tape or something. As the internet came into homes and teenagers for the first time had access to sexual material, the rates of sexual violence plummeted, literally plummeted. I think in the US, I think between the late eight, the late 70s, sorry, and 2005-ish, recorded sexual violence fell by about 85%, which is a stunning social change and yet something that people don't want to talk about because it doesn't fit with anyone's scare stories and you know the media thrives on scare stories it's one of the big stories but as we know not just in this area but in in all sorts of areas positive stories aren't really that interesting you know we we had this similar with the uh, decline in poverty over the past 30 years there's been this huge global decline in poverty and it's not a story because you can't take photos of that you know this Mm. it's just happened whereas a famine you can generate some news and photos and charity donations and so on. So yeah, good news stories don't get covered. And there are kind of obvious reasons for that. And there are also some quite dark reasons for that, which is that you have motivated campaigning groups who raise donations. They require people to believe that things are getting worse in order to generate donations. And that's certainly true of the anti-rape movement, which came out of the 1960s feminist movement. That turned into an industry. It became reliant on grants and donations. and to say that actually this has got a lot better in the past 20, 30 years is not good for business if you're running an organization like that. 
But yeah, as I said, the evidence in, from Germany, from Denmark, from Japan, I believe, and in particular from the United States, which has really good statistics over time. There's no doubt that sexual violence has fallen while porn use has, has risen. And again, it's really hard to deal with that for anti-porn campaigners because their entire shtick is to claim the opposite. As a final question, Jerry, what do you think this censorship you talked about is having on society's collective mental health? And what did the book teach you about yourself as well? As I, I mentioned at the beginning, one of the things I initially became interested in the censorship of pornography, but I started to worry about censorious and authoritarian attitudes to speech and expression in general. And that started to worry me because it wasn't just happening in a small niche that was out of sight. I think this affected everyone. The rise of echo chambers, of mob pylons on social media, of cancel culture, of people being destroyed for saying, for tweeting the wrong thing. That has done incredible damage to society's mental health. And, and I've always been a, a kind of believer in, in liberty with a small L, but I, I absolutely I've become an absolute believer that suppressing speech is incredibly damaging to individuals and to groups. And I've seen that at the kind of global level and the, the national level, but it also is true within families. You know, I come from a big family and you can absolutely see that where communication, that communication gets suppressed in families for similar kind of reasons and dynamics work strangely and some people don't get a voice and that's bad for people and bad for families. Not being able to say what's on your mind is not good for you. And often the things that people want to say are the things that other people don't want them to say. So writing the book and the aftermath, and I still write a lot and I'm considering another book. I think the personal has become political over the past decade. I've always been a political politics geek. There used to be, you know, there's real life and there's politics and, and those two things have blurred into one. That's terrifying because you're thinking about things like authoritarianism, fascism, communism. Living in the UK, we're lucky that we don't understand how those things work. And we like to imagine that it's kind of the government and the bad old police and they just force everyone to be like that. But that's not how they work at all. They work from the bottom up. Societies become like that because people start to turn on each other and start to become less tolerant. And the biggest thing I've learned and the thing that worries me the most is that we're in a, an era of particular intolerance and you can't actually predict what's going on because it's coming from the grassroots and not from the top. And rather than fear the state and fear the government, I start to feel sorry for the government because actually people love a good witch hunt. Mm. And the higher up the offender, the greater the, the witch hunt they love. So, you know, being a, an MP today isn't a powerful thing, you're kind of first in line for the mob. And we're in an almost revolutionary moment where the richer, more powerful someone has been, the more likely they are to go to the guillotine, you know? So yeah, and I'm looking to write a book about cults and the way that cults have come into politics or cults and politics are kind of indistinguishable about from each other. And I think that's the scary thing I've learned. Humans aren't rational when they work as a group. Humans are capable of being completely irrational as long as everyone around them is completely irrational as well. That's the scary thing. That's the scary thing that I've learned. We've talked all about porn panic. I want to go a bit deeper and talk about your own mental health journey, Jerry. So I ask all my special guests this question first. Walk me through early life, teenage years, 
And looking back, were there any early mental health experiences you can pinpoint? Who's the Jerry we meet here? Okay, I guess my character is I'm quite a resilient person and I'm quite a confident and self-reliant person. So to an extent, I didn't notice stuff that I notice now looking back. I'm very much a believer in genes and, you know, genetic roots to our personalities and the way we respond to things. So, you know, you get through life, two people will hit the same stumbling block and respond in completely different ways. And so people respond to trauma in different ways. But I guess I'm someone that kind of breezes past stuff and only worries about it in hindsight, which means to an extent, I guess I've, I've been less scathed by things than I might have been. But well, that's also, a good thing. <laughs> it's kind of nice. But also, obviously, you carry stuff without realizing it. So sure. you get older before you realize this stuff. But yeah, I came from a fairly big and loud and interesting family with, with lots of issues. My parents, I guess that the first thing that kind of marks my history, you know, the first big change was my parents getting divorced when I was about 10. And then my, my mum met my stepdad and remarried and had two more kids. So I was one of three. And then I've got two half sisters so there are five of us. So I kind of went from what was seemed like a fairly stable, easy, fun childhood into teenage years. And at the same time, going through my parents divorcing, moving house and having my family grow from three to five. And I was the oldest. The first thing that stands out was that period, which was very disruptive. And obviously at the time, I thought that all of that changed me and changed life and it did in a lot of ways, but the fact that I hit puberty at the same time is quite hard to disentangle. And you find a lot of people tend to blame whatever happened to them around puberty for the changes they went through in their personality and their feelings, which is, <laughs> and kind of discounting the fact that their hormones were changing and, and that affects you massively. And also, I guess, being the oldest, being more self-reliant character, I resolved to leave home as soon as possible. You know, I was in a big, noisy house little baby sisters crawling over my possessions and breaking stuff and whatever. So my instinct was to get away as soon as possible. And I think that was massively beneficial for me. And, you know, there were problems, there were relationship problems. It was difficult to have a big family like that over so many years. So I think looking back and comparing to my siblings, I was to an extent, I got off lightest because I had that attitude that I didn't really need them and I could get away and who needs family and blah. And I should say, you were still a fairly close family. We're still all talk and we, we see each other and so on. So, you know, I'm not saying it was the worst thing in the world. I certainly helped myself, I think, relative to my siblings by creating distance and none of the rest of them did. I want to talk about fatherhood now because you experienced it twice in your life you became a father for the first time at a very early age Jerry when you were 18 years old and you said to me off air that it brought out something in me so how did fatherhood change your life and change you at the time because I was this kind of defiant character that I decided I was going to leave home and I mean to be honest I only really did A levels because my parents insisted and you know I, I was happy to get up and leave at 16 and just go off and start an adventure so I did my A-levels but while I was doing them I also met my first girlfriend and got her pregnant so literally I think the day I finished my last A-level which kind of June 2000 and 
sorry, <laughs> wasn't 2000 or an ending, June 1983, June 1983. The day I finished my last A-level, I then came home and told my parents, oh, by the way, I'm going to have a child. So I, I'd, I'd kept it hidden from them. And then three months later, I became a father. And so again, that's like a train hitting your life at the time, because I'd kind of determined to leave and to, to just get out and be independent. I saw that as generally part of my route out of home and my route into adulthood anyway. So I was kind of very bullish about it and quite, yeah, not necessarily, I, I wasn't that excited to have a child. That wasn't, hadn't been my plan, but I wasn't unexcited. And I, you know, as far as I was concerned, it just hit with reaching adulthood, leaving home, starting work and so on. So it was all, again, I, I kind of took that in my, in my stride. It turned out to be this very hard work having kids. So yeah, my son was born and you go through physical changes when you have a child, you know, hormonal and deep psychological things happen when you have a child. And so as soon as he was born, I just felt this overwhelming need to protect him and make sure that his life was as good as possible. And so I guess I grew up very quickly and became responsible and, and needed to be responsible. And I think that's something that affects most people when they have children. You fundamentally change and the purpose of your life changes and you take less risks. You worry about the future more, you know, mm. especially being, being a bloke you'll take risks and not worry too much if you're going to be alive in 10 years time or not. When you have a, a baby, you worry a lot about whether you're going to be alive in 10 years time or not, because you absolutely have to be there for the well-being of that person. You know, all of that hits you really hard. And yeah, so I, I had a young son who was born when I was 18. He's 38 now. And that was kind of how I started out life. And I, I was then married to his mother. We were together for several years. So we, we split up eventually when I was 24. And so to an extent, you know, when I was 24, I, I had my son still, I had him every weekend. So I was still a very hands-on dad, but also my youth didn't begin till I was 24 because I'd had to kind of suspend it for, <laughs> for a few years. You became a father again relatively recently in the last few years and you've got two young kids. So what was that second fatherhood experience? Like you've had to shape this podcast around one of them today. Did you expect it to happen again? I've kind of always kept open the idea that I might have kids again. I like family life. I like being in relationships and I think kids are fantastic. I'd also learned how hard it is, you know, especially in the early years, it's really, really hard work and very demanding and exhausting. You know, if anything's going to puncture your mental health, then it's having, having small children, you know, in terms of the hours, in terms of the lost sleep, it's a huge, it's a huge commitment. So I knew all of that, but yeah, I, I kind of hadn't, got round to having kids with anyone until then. Then I, so I met my partner, my wife now, about 15 years ago, she wanted kids and I had to then decide if we were gonna stay together and have kids or not. I wouldn't ask someone not to have kids. For me, I wouldn't see that to be a fair thing, but yeah, we decided we'd have two kids. This time it was the exact opposite of my first experience. So I really put the brakes on, I made her wait. I made sure I wanted to really absorb what was gonna happen. We waited five years, five, six years after meeting before we started trying for kids. And then almost straight away, my son came in 2013 and then my daughter in 2016. So I was the most ultra prepared person the first time, the second time mm -hmm. and zero preparation the, the first time. <laughs> I kind of, so yeah, it was two completely different experiences and also two weird points in life. I was almost 50 the second time. I was 18 
the first time, almost 50 the second time. And in between, I kind of lived a bit of a hedonist and kind of just gone back to living life and, and enjoying it. So I knew it was going to be hard. It was hard. It was more exhausting than I could have imagined. It was more exhausting than I remembered and not surprising given that I'm in my 50s. But yeah, it's really enjoyable. People need to be told honestly about having kids. You know, A, it's very hard. And B, you have to give up a lot of things that you enjoy doing. But yeah, it's very hard when people without kids ask if they should have kids. It's impossible to answer because your life will get better in ways that you don't even understand and it will get worse in all the ways that you do understand. <laughs> and it's like if people doubt it, yeah, I could never tell people to have kids if they have strong doubts because you've got five years of exhausting hard work, another five years of fairly exhausting hard work. Then you have to deal with teenagers who are a pain in the ass and then they leave and you kind of wonder what, what you did that for in the first place. So yeah, it's, it's a very... It's a very strange thing. When it comes to your children with your current partner, you said given your age and what you've experienced in life, you become more interested in nature and how it relates to their biological sex and how they express their gender. Can yeah. you unpack that exploration for me? And also the fears you've had as well when it comes to bringing up a son in this world of social media, maybe a daughter too. Yeah, so I'm very much a geek and you know I'm fascinated <laughs> with evolution and genes and biology and stuff. And generally, the scientific consensus has edged more and more towards the fact that genes are incredibly important in character development, genes and hormones when it comes to when it comes to sex and gender. So it used to be called nature versus nurture. And when I was young, the nurture people were winning the arguments, not really winning the arguments, but society was going much more behind nurture rather than nature and generally now the scientific consensus is the other way that nature is very important and of course your childhood and your your upbringing and so on all make a difference but yeah in general you can reassure parents to an extent that unless you traumatize your children you don't have as much control over their outcomes as you thought they did so you know parents are either really proud and how good their children are and they think it's down to them or they're really mortified that they've done something wrong because their children have gone off the rail or whatever. And in both cases, it isn't that warranted. You know, you, one thing you realize when you have a baby is that you're dealing with a creature which has a fairly well-formed personality and set of character attributes. And you don't have that much control over those from day one. What you can do is work with them and learn to help them understand their characters and, and learn to help them grow into the world. So you don't mold them, you kind of teach them to fit like a jigsaw piece into society and, and into the world. So yeah, my son's now nearly nine and my daughter's nearly six. The, the whole issue of gender identity and gender roles and gender behaviors is fascinating. And again, science comes down very heavily on, on nature and politics tends to come down very much on, mm -hmm. on the side of nurture. There's still this agony over whether boys, toys and girls, toys should be separated and in toy shops and there's this feminist general belief that the reason men and women are different is because we we raise them with social biases and stuff and when you have a kid you very quickly learn that isn't true your kid knows themselves they know what they like and what they don't like my daughter's the tougher character than my son kind of emotionally more resilient but yeah she's absolutely obsessed with she's nearly six she's obsessed you might be able to see she's been painting my nails. I've been <laughs> off. She insists on painting my nails. She watches 
dramas that involve relationships and families and breakups and you know she's fascinated with all this stuff and my son likes punching me and playing computer games you know and those things won't force them you know i think (laughs) they tend to find them (laughs) that's right but you take them to a shop and they find what they want it doesn't matter if the boys and girls toys are separated or together my son will head for the weaponry and the tech stuff and my daughter will head for the sparkly things and that's just what happens so gender identity is very firmly implanted in everyone when they're born you you learn that and what's been interesting is watching feminist friends coping with their son having a son and coping with the fact that you cannot stop them being a boy whatever you do you cannot stop them wanting to be violent which is quite funny because they've spent most of their lives blaming men for turning boys violent and things my son is always trying to make weapons and you know i let him fight me he can fight me as much as he wants my main rule is that I'm going to hit him back as hard as he hits me. So that's an important lesson to learn, that the harder you hit, the harder you're going to get hit. And, you know, he's going to learn that the hard way. It's absolutely fascinating. And the other thing, you know, gender is a spectrum. There aren't two buckets of people, males and females. Boys absolutely have more feminine parts to them. Girls absolutely have more masculine parts. And every person's different. But in general, boys and girls are quite different things. One thing you wanted to talk about before we finish this topic, Jerry, is an assault which you experienced 20 years ago, which is a long time, I know. But you were at significant risk of being killed in this assault. If you felt comfortable, can you tell me about the events of that day and the effect it had on your mental health during it and then afterwards in the weeks and months that followed? Um, Yeah, so this was, in general, men are more likely to experience violence and, and to an extent we're better equipped for it, I think, mentally and whatever. So I'd, I've had the odd kind of minor assault or some drunk people trying to hit me in pubs occasionally or something, but nothing serious. This was the ex-partner, sorry, this was a guy who'd been seeing my ex and then she split up, he, he was very abusive. She left him and went off and basically into hiding for a bit. And my son then came to live with me. You know, she was very traumatized. My son was very traumatized. And this guy was a complete nutcase and as the man in that situation you feel the need to step up and to hide your emotions to an extent and I think that's actually important stuff because I didn't want my son to see I was scared I knew he was scared I wanted him to to see that you don't have to be scared even though I was pretty scared (laughs) you know again where gender roles come in it's important put a shield around your kids especially and to lie and say you know this is no big deal this guy's an idiot i'm not worried about him but yeah the guy was a bit of a nut and he was a drinker so one night he decided he wanted to find my ex his ex and my ex and he came to my house so he he kind of got drunk came up with a clever plan i don't know what his plan exactly was now thankfully she wasn't there with me she wasn't living with me he thought she was and also thankfully my son wasn't there but he turned up I open the door and there's a guy standing out there holding a meat cleaver above his head, which was kind of like, okay, you, you kind of freeze for a moment. And then I tried to close the door. He forced his way in and basically hustled me up the stairs. And again, my characters, I'm very good in crisis moments. So in moments like that, I always become ultra calm, like ultra rational, which is a, a useful character trait sometimes i think it comes with costs as well but it's it's certainly useful at the time so i basically he hustled in and then asked me if 
she was there and then demanded that I phone her. So he, I phoned her and put him on the phone and he basically told her he had, she had half an hour to turn up or he was going to kill me and hung up the phone. So basically I was then in my flat with this guy who was holding a meat cleaver and saying he was going to kill me then kind of not sure what to do next. And so my next job was to bring him on side. He, he started kind of apologizing and saying, now, so this isn't about you, this is about her, blah, blah, blah. So my first instinct was to get him on side and become matey with him. I thought of offering him a drink and I thought, actually, that's probably a bad idea. And then I'd been smoking some hash. It was all slightly weirder because I was a bit stoned when he turned up. And then I thought, okay, actually, this could be really useful so I, I asked him if he minded me rolling a joint so I kind of I remembered kind of like my hands shaking you know trying to roll this joint he said yeah go ahead and then pretended to smoke on it I made it really strong and pretended to smoke on it and then I offered him some and being an idiot he accepted it I don't know if you've ever smoked weed or anything but it does the opposite in terms of bravado it does the exact opposite of alcohol so basically we sat down, he was kind of sitting there with holding this meat cleaver and kind of apologizing that he was going to have to kill me or something. I didn't know how seriously to take the threat, but I took it seriously enough. It was like a cartoon. He took two or three pulls of this on the spliff and then his eyes changed and he went, oh, fuck, I bet she calls the police. She's going to call the police, isn't she? And he literally just up and legged it out the flat because, you know, cannabis stokes your paranoid and anxious feelings. So it all went kind of smoothly, you know, it turned out she had called the police. So they did turn up not long after and they went and tracked him down and arrested him and, and so on. But yeah, that stands out as a mental health moment because I then realized eventually I was suffering from PTSD after that. The police put a panic button in, in the flat, but it didn't help much. And my son, I mean, this guy was sending me threatening text messages and my teenage son because I was pressing charges. So he was telling us to drop charges and so on and I refused to drop charges and so one thing I noticed that was really weird I bulked up I looked like I'd been going to the gym after a couple of weeks it looked because basically when you've got adrenaline in you all the time your muscles grow you're tense all the time you so this is obviously a very sensible evolutionary kind of <laughs> trick but yeah so I, I looked buff and I hadn't been to the gym because I was just constantly looking out for him there was a, a genuine chance he was going to turn up again or whatever and my sleep patterns got affected and I remember one night I lived in a terraced house and a loud smash of glass and I, I thought someone had broken in so I literally I was, it was four in the morning I was out of bed in the kitchen with a knife in my hand within about less than 10 seconds I think from being asleep so that's what stress is for stress is really useful and it, you know it's designed for, for things like that living with constant stress it just kind of degrades you and you don't sleep and everything and so we pushed it to court the way i eventually dealt with it was to get some weapons which are probably like which weren't that legal it wasn't hardcore weaponry but get some defensive weapons for myself and my son and i won't mention because yeah i don't want to incriminate myself or anything but that's um, fine I, I would have edited out if you had said it <laughs> <laughs> so i carried this in my bag for a bit and the minute i had that and felt that if he finds me, the advantage is mine. The stress stops. But this was almost a year later. So for a year or so, I lived with PTSD in hindsight. And again, making sure that my son was protected and that I didn't show him how worried I was because he was terrified, you know. 
so yeah that that's a particular moment when i realized my my mental health wasn't bulletproof went to court and he got off because the police had handled it really badly but it didn't matter by then he just kind of vanished after that let's reflect on your journey now i've got two more questions left jerry so what have all these experiences taught you about yourself and if you could go back and talk to the jerry who was maybe struggling to process his parents' divorce or the Jerry who was becoming a dad at 18 years old or the Jerry, like you said, who was living in fear for a year of his life, trying to go about his day-to-day life and protect his son. Mm. What would you say to him knowing what you do now? I'd say, yeah, I am quite a resilient character, but I'd explain to myself that I'm not actually bulletproof and that you kind of build the scars over time. But then again, I don't know how useful that information is anyway. You know, you just learn that as you need to learn it really. I mean, I'd kind of give myself advice about being foolhardy and and that kind of thing. Yeah, I guess I I did go through my youth believing I was fairly bulletproof and and I could do anything, but that's not necessarily a bad way to start out. So, you know, I I think I did okay. But yeah, you realize you do suppress loads. And I've always been a bit of a skeptic of, you know, people who dwell too much on their psychological problems and, and so on. I, you know, I think there's certainly a happy medium you know, especially in places like California, it's become almost a cult where you have to work through everything for your, your whole life. But yeah, absolutely. I've learned you do carry stuff and you can not realize that you are until certain things happen and then it bring it brings everything out. Jerry Barnett, thank you so much for coming on the Just Checking In podcast and talking to me today. It's a pleasure. Thank you for the invitation. Well, I think that's all we've got time for on this episode of the Just Checking In podcast. Thank you to Jerry for breaking down some of the myths around the porn industry and for opening up about his PTSD and the transformative effect fatherhood had on him. I will drop Jerry's social media handles in the show notes and where you can buy a copy of Porn Panic. I'll sign us off by saying thank you to all the vendors who've tuned into this episode. If you've liked what you've heard, please give it a share on social media. Tell your friends, tell your work colleagues about it, tell your family. If you want to support us, you can drop us a rating and five-star review on Apple Podcasts. You can also support our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash venthelpuk or you can visit our GoFundMe if you want to make a one-off donation. The next Just Checking In Live is a few weeks away, so please go buy our ticket if you haven't already. That link is on our link tree as well. We hope to check in with you again very soon. And remember, guys, it is always okay to vent.